morning we may once again open God's Word, and we're going to turn to Luke chapter 12. Luke 12, and we're beginning at verse 22, the heading that starts, Do Not Worry. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. Life is more than food and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the lilies grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after all such things, and your father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is the word of the Lord. Please join me as we pray. Lord Jesus, we come to your word. Uh, we've heard it read, and soon we are to hear it preached. But we understand that we need you to speak to us. We need you to interpret what we've just read. We need you to apply it to our hearts. There's a good chance most of us here spend much of our lives in worry, and there's nothing profound to say, don't worry. There is something profound, though, in the Spirit teaching us not to worry. And so, Lord, as all that can be done is to stand up here and to just talk about what was read, I ask that you work in the hearts of all of us, that this Father's Day we can begin to change if we have not yet already begun to change, that we can worry less and trust more, that we can seek you more, and in seeking you can see your brilliance. Open your word to us and let us feast today, for you are a gracious God. In your name, amen. Something to be said for having to preach. I, I, I'm not parents, as I've said. I think it's a lot like parenting, though, because you, you think this is what I'm going to do and I'm going to be 
saying something profound or doing something profound and it's going to be amazing and yada, yada, yada. Um, and like, like with parents, and you say, I'm not going to do this, or I'm going to be better than my parents. Then you have the kids, and after you've pulled out all your hair, you're like, wow, okay, that was not what I expected. Um, it's a little bit like preaching. And there, there's kind of two ways to go into this passage today. The one is to look at it more as Terry did in the children's message, to go the bottom half of it and use the first half to interpret it and to say, uh, seek first, seek first, seek first. The other way is to go top half, do not worry, do not worry, do not worry, and use the bottom half to interpret that, seeking first God's kingdom. And I chose to go for the top half, which I really regret, um, <laughs> because it's all about worrying. And I spent this whole week, my wife can attest to this, um, worrying about things I couldn't control. I had a pretty epic meltdown this morning. And then I'm sitting there praying, oh, Lord, please, how do I preach this? Please. And I'm worrying about how I'm going to preach this. Um, so my, my question for you is how many of you are worriers like me? I see a couple hands, yeah. The hands that went up are the honest people. <laughs> uh, if you are a worrier, again, like me, you probably don't know when enough is enough. We always want something more, don't we? We don't know when to be satisfied. We don't know when it's good enough. Uh, take John Rockefeller, for example, if you're familiar with who he is. He would be considered today to be the richest person in U.S. history. If he were alive today, he'd be worth $392 billion. The man wanted for nothing. He lacked nothing. He was a believer. He gave a lot away. But when he was once asked, how much is enough, he said, just a little bit more. And what that does is it reveals to us the human condition, the human heart, the natural desire. We always need something more. We think once we get the thing that our heart craves, we'll be satisfied. But we're not. You see, we always tell ourselves just one more dollar and then I'll be satisfied. Or we say, just another vacation. Or just as long as my grass grows in nice this year and my flowers grow up beautiful, then people will think something of me when they drive by and they go, look at that house and not that house. Or we think, I just need that, that boy to like me or that girl to like me, or I just need better children. Or I need a better politician. We always tell ourselves there's something more that we need. We need something else something beyond what we have. And so when it comes to this world, enough is never enough. And it's never going to be enough. Why? Because we were made for something more. C.S. Lewis once said, I'm sure you're familiar with the quote, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation was that I was made for another world. You see, there's a positive aspect to that, and there's a negative aspect to it. And in our passage, Jesus takes time to focus on both. That's, again, what I said, that there's that top half and that bottom half. The, the top half is the negative. The bottom half is the positive. And what Jesus does when he focuses on that negative aspect to all of this is he says, if your hearts and your minds are on the things of this world, if you treasure the things that this world offers, be it money, kids, anything. You can, you can really put anything in there. He says you'll never be satisfied and you will always be left in worry. Why? Because this world can end in an instant. It can all be taken away from you. Yet, on the positive side, 
If we turn our eyes to the kingdom of God, we know we are assured that we will receive everything that Christ has. And what it shows us, our big overarching point to all of this, is that it is a command. We must not worry. It's sinful. We must not worry about the things of this life, but instead we have to seek first the kingdom of our Father, because only there will enough be enough. Now as we jump into the passage, we begin in verse 22. There Jesus opens up and he's just told a a parable about what he's going to talk about and then he just jumps into it and he gives this clear and this unmistakable command and I think a lot of times we read it and we gloss over it and we find reasons to justify it but he's, he's pretty point blank here and he says, do not worry about anything ever. Never worry, not about what you're going to eat, not about what you'll wear, not about what you drink. And of course, he's, he's not saying, okay, what you need to do is you need to stop working or feeding yourselves. And he's not saying, okay, we need to live with reckless abandon and just do whatever comes to our mind or our heart. Because it, it truly is foolish to give yourself a lack of nutrition. It's foolish to uh, rack up unnecessary debts and things like that. But his point as he begins is to drive us deeper. And so notice that at no point in this passage, and really not any point in Jesus' ministry, does he try and limit your earthly possessions? But what he wants us to see as he just comes out swinging and says, don't worry, is that life is more than the sum of its parts. Life is more than about today. It's more than about tomorrow. It's more than about everything you'll gain. It's more than about everything you'll do. And the reason it is, is because God is ultimately in control. Too often we get caught up in assuming that we need to provide for ourselves. We try and build an empire on this life, and we try to justify it by saying, I'm just going to pass it on to my kids. I'm really just trying to provide for them. And so we work, and we work, and we work, and become workaholics, and again, enough is never enough. Or, again, if you're like me, you stress out that tomorrow is going to bring a problem that you can't overcome. You don't know what the problem is, but you're worried about it. What Jesus wants us to do is to take that and to look at it and to wrestle with that and to ask why. Again, he's not driving us to worry itself. He's driving us beyond worry. And so to pierce through that veil, he asks us this question. Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? Or another way of putting that, who of you, by worrying, can add food to your plate? Or let's say that you have debt or you want some more money in your bank account. If you toss and turn all night, if you get so engrossed in your problem and you sweat blood... When you wake up, is your debt lessened? No, of course not, right? We can't worry ourselves into any of these these things. And so Jesus says in verse 25 to 26 that if we can't even do such a simple thing as worrying ourselves into an extra hour, then what's the value of worry at all? Why do we do it? What purpose does it serve in our life? Because again, it has no value. It can offer you no gain. It can't provide anything for you. Not only that, but you can quickly watch it damage your relationships with each other. You can watch it damage your own self-relationship and especially your relationship with God. Because what you're doing is you're taking your focus off the things that your focus should be on, the kingdom, and putting them onto yourself. And so one commentator rightly says, a man may worry himself to death, but he cannot worry himself into a longer life. So we see this, for example, play out with Achan in Joshua chapter 7. 
you're familiar with that part of the Bible, you'll know the whole battle of Jericho. Israel has just come into the promised land after 40 years in the wilderness, and they've just scored this major victory as they're taking the land to themselves. And what happens is they march around Jericho, nobody dies, the Lord has the walls crumble, and they take all the plunder, and they put it all in the Lord's treasury. Why? Because it's the Lord who won the battle. Achan, however, sees this, and he's not content with what he's just got. He's not content with what he's going to get, but he sees this gold, he sees the silver, he sees everything else, and he covets it. He wants some for himself. And so he goes, he takes some, and he buries it in his tent. He doesn't do anything with it. He puts it straight into the ground. It doesn't do do anything positive. But the underlying point was that enough is not enough. He's not content with victory. He's not content with God's provision. He wants more. He doesn't even know what he's going to do with it. Of course, Achan is found out and everything he owns is the treasures dug up and everything that he has and had previous to this, including himself and his children, are brought forward. They are stoned and they are burned. And the lesson is that he tries to secure his earthly future at the expense of his eternal hope. It's an insane thing, and yet we all do this. We all just want something more. We worry about what tomorrow is going to bring us, but there's no reason and there's no point, and the lusts of our heart cause us to lose everything. To highlight how crazy worry is, Jesus turns our attention to the ravens and the lilies. He says, if God provides for those, don't you think he'll provide for you? Because think of it, a raven, according to the law, is an unclean bird. Why in the world would would God care for it? It's worthless, it can't serve as a pet, it's dirty, it's gross, and it has no concept of what it needs. It has no idea where to get seed, how to plant seed, how to farm seed, how to build a barn, and how to store the harvest. They have no assurance that tomorrow will bring them anything. And yet from the beginning of time until now, they have thrived. They have been cared for. It's even just fitting that we can look at this passage spoken over 2,000 years ago and say, ravens are still here. We can still look out into the sky and see them. But even though they can't provide, they're cared for simply because the Lord is good. Or Jesus says, turn your attention to the lilies. They have no needle. They have no thread. They have no machinery. They have no dye with which to dye their clothing. They don't even, need to, they don't even know they need to be clothed. At least ravens have brains, but lilies don't. And yet Jesus, who through all of creation was spoken, says, I'll tell you the truth. Not even Solomon's clothes, the richest man in Israelite history, not even his best clothes could compare with God's creation. And so if God doesn't just provide for the raven and the lily, but provides in abundance, do we really think that he's not going to provide for us? And so once again, Jesus is not saying, okay, stop working. And I'm anti-socialist. He's saying, don't become a socialist. Rather, as as he always does, he brings us deeper to why we worry. Because once again, if God provides for those who can't provide for themselves, like the ravens and the lilies, it's insane to think that he won't provide for us. And ultimately, that's his point on the negative side of things. Worry reveals a fundamental distrust in God's purposes. You can say whatever you want. You can justify it however you want. Trust me, I do that. I say, yeah, but. But at the end of the day, what it says is, God, you're not good enough. God, you don't provide enough. God, I don't trust you for tomorrow. 
You're the God who was, you're the God who kind of is, but I have no idea if you're the God who's going to be. That's what worry is. It's a parasite. It will eat you alive. It will destroy your relationship with the Almighty if you let it have any sort of hold in your life. Instead, what Jesus wants us to do is to differ in our inner yearnings, to set our hearts on different things, to be controlled by different ideals, and to be motivated by a different love. Because, as he continues in verse 28 and 31, he says, not only is worry fruitless, but it's actually the sign and the mark of an unbeliever. You see, this world is so concerned with its happiness The world is so concerned with its satisfaction and what it's going to have for today. And when we take things into our own hands, it will always lead to a destruction. Our hearts will always be in the today and never in the tomorrow. It will always lead to a falling out from the Lord, just like with Achan. And it's hard to get away from this because all of us believers do worry, at least in some aspects. Kids, anything else. And again, just to to bring up myself Worry, I'd say, is far away, I hope you agree with this, is I'd say far away my biggest struggle. And the one thing that I always focus on is money. How am I going to provide for my family? I don't even have them yet, but when I retire, can I leave something to my kids? And so it, it, this isn't an illustration, it's not an example, it's, it's a shame, and I'm very ashamed to admit it, but many, many times I've held back tithes from the church because I just think, eh, we got all of you, <laughs> they'll provide But look at what that reveals again, self-trust, self-provision. Assuming that if I don't provide for myself, if I don't provide for my family, if I don't take back from the church, no one else is going to. Again, that's the essence of worry. We cannot trust anyone but ourselves. Dog eat dog, the strongest survives. And isn't this how sin entered the world in the first place? We know that it was pride, obviously. But fundamentally, what Adam and Eve wanted was to be their own gods. They wanted to provide for themselves. They wanted to take matters into their own hands. But what we see there is that self-reliance, worry, always leads to death, whether spiritually or physically. That's why Jesus, again, drives us to the roots. He keeps drilling us down, and he says, when is enough enough? You can worry all you want, but if you're not dead, it means God has given you what you need to live. When is enough enough? And it's here when Jesus gets here in the passage that he makes a big switch. Instead of simply saying not to worry, Jesus flips from the negative, do not, do not, do not. And he turns it into the positive. But do or but seek or but trust Because you see, the absence of worry doesn't actually solve any problems. We can eradicate it, we can get rid of it, but then what? Because anyone can learn to shut down their hearts and shut down their emotions and use that common refrain, it is what it is. We'll skip down the sidewalk and maybe you know the song, whatever will be, will be. And instead of actually dealing with the problem and facing it, we start to just, just push down our emotions. And this really is a form of self-preservation, isn't it? To just say, I'm going to pull myself up by the bootstraps and I'm going to get rid of worry. And so what we do, again, is we place a lid over our emotions to keep them from boiling over. And if you've ever boiled anything, you know putting a lid on it causes it to boil faster. And so we get angry or we get bitter or we have physical manifestations of it that causes problems or perhaps you just shut down and you think you're fine but others can see you're not. 
Once again, Jesus is saying that the root of worry is self-reliance. And to just stop worrying is just a different form of self-reliance. Indeed, what he wants us to do is to see the destructive nature of worry and to replace it with trust. That's again why he makes that switch in the passage from the negative do not to the positive, but start seeking. So for example, if that's just kind of this out there concept, imagine if you've ever done this, you've eaten just nothing but junk food for this long period of time. And it's causing your teeth to rot out of your head, it's making you lose energy, or um, just generally becoming unhealthy. I hope none of you have ever done that. But what would you do in that situation if you were just eating all this junk food, eating, 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 and it was making you unhealthy to the point where your doctor said, you've got to make a change? How many of you would just stop eating food altogether? Good. (laughs) What you would need to do is take the junk food and replace it with healthy food, something nutritious. You see, it doesn't really just do good to eradicate the problem. It's got to be replaced with something else. The junk food must become healthy food. And so what we're told in this passage is because God knows every one of our needs, we can and we must trust him. To see that if he provides for the plants and the animals, he has provided for us. I can confidently say that. No one in here is dead. So God's provided what we need to live. And if he's provided for the plants and the animals, he will continue to provide for us. Our Lord knows everything we need before we do. And that's why Jesus in verse 29 makes that switch and he says, do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. Instead, seek Do seek the kingdom. Again, our God knows what we need. He will always provide. It doesn't mean that we're all going to be rich. It doesn't mean at times we won't be left wanting physically. But it does mean that he is aware. Look at Israel in the wilderness, for example, shortly before Joshua 7 with Achan. There they were suffering because of God's anger at sin. They spent 40 years walking through the wilderness, just kind of traveling around, going here and there. And this is not a vacation. The point is that they're waiting for an entire generation to die. Can you imagine that, going through the wilderness and being like, hey, mom and dad, if you could just croak, we could get out of here. It's not fun. It's terrible. And yet what happens in the desert, what happens in the wilderness, every day God sends manna. It falls from the heavens, except for Sunday, obviously, but it falls from the heavens even in his displeasure. And when that wasn't good enough for Israel, he sends quail, And he sends water. He supplies for their physical needs so that they are never unfed and never uncared for. You see, no matter the climate or the situation around us, Jesus says not to just stop worrying because that, again, is a form of self-reliance. He says, turn your eyes heavenward. See the manna that always falls. See that this is God's kingdom. He owns it. He made it. He orchestrates all things. He's the one who provides. And your worrying and stressing out can't gain you one more cent, one more second, or anything of the sort. Everything that comes from God's hand is gracious, and he knows better than we do what we need. That probably wasn't new. (laughs) You probably know that already. And so if you're like me, you, you come to it and you say, that's, that's fantastic. This provision is great. I really am thankful for it. But the reality is that we all suffer. We all get sick. Some of us are unemployed. Some of us have lost our children. Some of us are losing our parents. All of us are going to eventually die. 
And look at people in North Korea or in Africa, those who believe in the Lord and don't have food every day. What then? But Jesus has an answer for us. You see, he's in the middle of that very problem himself. Because after all, his entire life was about dying. He knows that the physical fades. He knows that ultimately our hope can't be in what is given to us in the form of manna. And that's why as he continues, he turns our attention from the perishable to the imperishable. Because while God does indeed provide physically, ultimately all shall die. And so Jesus is focused on the spiritual. So up until this point, if you're you're not really tracking with me, if you have your Bible open, you'll know that there's this switch right around uh, verse 30. Verse 29 makes the switch. And up until that point, the entire focus of the passage is on that negative. Just stop worrying, and then that switch. But start trusting. He says, don't worry because it's not going to do you any good. Trust because God will provide. And we think, okay, that's really great. And then we hit verse 32, and Jesus makes this startling claim. He says, God has already provided, so take all you have and sell it. Now, doesn't this just seem opposite? This may seem like a very disjointed passage or sermon, and that's because it it kind of is. Don't worry, trust, oh wait a second, you have, so give everything. So what Jesus has really been saying to his disciples, to those who are listening, is don't worry, I, I know the struggle. I'm not rich. I'm suffering Jesus probably had blisters on his feet. I'm going to the cross. Trust, know that God will provide. Oh, and God has provided, so make sure you give everything away. How is this relevant to us? How do we get there from this worry, this trust, to all of a sudden having to give everything away? Why this monumental shift that doesn't make sense? How is this relevant to you who don't have a job? How is this relevant to to you who cannot have kids? How is it relevant to you who are older and have hurt yourself and know that this time your your body probably won't fully heal itself? Or how is this relevant to those of you who have a parent who's dying in the hospital? Once again, it's because Jesus isn't talking about the physical anymore. He's moving us away from thinking that this life is about money, it's about food, it's about health, it's about manna, it's about getting something. And he's showing us that when all that perishes, when all that goes the way of the grave, you still can have something more. Life is all about God. After all, what good did John Rockefeller's money do him? He's not alive anymore. What good does it continue to do him even though he's in the grave? Because Ecclesiastes tells us that the rich and the poor go to the same grave and it's the same grave as an animal. And so what Jesus has said in this passage is don't worry about the physical, but trust. And because you have the spiritual, give. So how does he connect those thoughts? How does he make sense of that, that really awkward, clunky, needs some WD-40 in there, that hinge? How does he make sense of that switch? It's a quick thing. It's far too easy to miss. But there's a word that Jesus hasn't used in all of chapter 12 until now. And indeed, chapter 12 begins this new dialogue, and so we can only guess and assume that he's intentionally avoided this word till now. You see, Jesus has, in this passage, referred to the heavenly Lord as God seven times. And many, many more times than that, he's just referred to him or his or he. But suddenly and abruptly, when he makes that clunky switch, 
he suddenly calls God your father. That's where everything switches. So just stop and soak that in. What Jesus is saying is that if you believe in me, if you believe in Christ, the Son of God, the Almighty is your father. You are his child. So again, what Jesus is saying is don't worry because God will provide. Trust because God has provided. Why? Because as we read in Ephesians 2, when you were dead, when you were nothing, when you were spiritually unaware, when you were so helpless and with nothing, like a baby in a crib, the Heavenly Father looked at you and he said, I'm going to make you mine and I am going to give you everything that I have. This should dispel all worry. It should relieve all fear. Because the creator of the universe is not just your friend. He's not just your savior. He's not just your Lord. But he is your father. And what that means in Romans 8, as we read, we are made co-heirs with Christ through adoption. So again, listen to Romans 8. It says, the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. I heard an amen. Amen? Amen. Yeah, but then Paul goes on. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. (laughs) Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. What is Jesus saying in that just clunky, really difficult shift to go from don't worry but trust, oh, and you have everything, what he's saying in that switch from God to Father where he just just all of a sudden throws that word in there is we need to see that instead of being in a world where God just set everything into motion and then left, you stepped into a relationship. A relationship where the Almighty looked down at you and decided to fully and legally adopt you, to become your father, to make you his child, to not just give you physical things until you die, but to give you spiritual life forevermore. We who were sinners, we who were enemies of God, oh, I'm just happy to be there. We who were hostile by nature to him are made his children in every legal sense of the word. So imagine, if you can, being adopted by Bill Gates. It would mean, indeed, legally, by the court of the law, you are his. If you're a child, he needs to sign your permission forms. He would tuck you in at night. If you're a woman, he would walk you down the aisle at your wedding. You would never, ever have to worry about money. You'd never be left wanting physically, and when he dies, you get everything his made. You're an heir of Bill Gates. Now that's security, right? But the problem is that Bill Gates dies. And all he can give you is finances. What Jesus says is that your heavenly father never dies. He never changes. He owns, holds, and determines all things. Every molecule in this universe is his. And he says, because I love you and have legally made you mine so that nothing can separate that, I will give you a co-share in this entire kingdom. Everything that Christ bought, everything that he earned, everything that was given to the Savior, the King of kings and Lord of lords, is yours. So come back to Jesus saying in that clunky shift in verse 33, sell all your possessions and give to the poor. Once again, his point is not just to say stop worrying or quit your job or dismantle your life and become a burden on society. And it's not just to stop worrying and start trusting. 
What he's saying is that you have to move through that. You have to see that that's all just, just kindergarten stuff. Believe it. And then start acting out of the knowledge that God is your father. You see, in this world, we have really, really, really good reasons to worry. Insert any struggle that you're going through. But when we know that we are the king's sons and daughters, it frees us to have a giving heart. We can be so secure in his love because he is the one who was, who is, and who is to come. He's the great I am. He stands outside of time. He doesn't change. And so when he says, I love you, it means he can't stop. That's what Paul again says in Romans 8, that he's convinced that nothing, death nor life, angels nor demons, height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation can separate you from the love of God. And so when the Father promises that he will give you all good things, you and I can be so assured of his promise that we are free to give all we have because we know he will supply everything we need. And so our inner yearnings can indeed begin to change. We can begin to change from worrying about what tomorrow will bring to seeing that we can use our worldly possessions to build a spiritual kingdom. Why? Why are we free? Because God loves us. And so you and I here can be the most generous, the most loving, the most giving because God has given us the kingdom. You see, this world is going to fade, but your Father's love never will. That's why he says in Isaiah 54.10, for the mountains may depart, the hills may be removed, But my steadfast love shall not depart from you. My covenant of peace shall not be removed. With that, we come and we'll leave off with this to the crux of our passage in verse 34. Jesus caps it all off by saying, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And here's when I ask you to step into this passage and ask yourself, where is your treasure? Is it in the things of this world? Is it in money? Is it in kids? Is it in security? Is it in relationships? Is it in free time? Is it in your image? What is it that keeps you up at night? What is it that dominates your thoughts? Because anything that causes your emotions to go up and down is your treasure. And if you and I are seeking anything at all from this earth, We will not only be kept in worry always, but we will lose everything. You see, enough will never be enough. Like Rockefeller will say, just one more dollar until we die. But instead, this this Father's Day, (laughs) turn your eyes off of the perishable and put them on the imperishable. See that because Jesus gave his life, God has given you his heart. Spend time thanking him for what your adoption means. It means you have access to him. It means that you have assurance of the next life. It means that as 1 Peter 5, 7 says, you can cast your cares on him because he cares for you. And you can be assured that he knows and that he will provide for your physical needs even if right now things seem dim. Don't worry, God's got this. So live free. Give what you can. And if you can, pray this prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive our debts. Lead us not into temptation. And Father, as you assure me of your love and all good things, as you become my treasure, help me to use my earthly wealth to bring others into the spiritual kingdom, to see that just as you are my Father, and I never have to worry, and in the middle of the night when I get up, I can look to you and I can call to you and I can know your promises. Help me to give so that others can call you fathers too. And if your earthly father did raise you in the faith, today is the day to thank him. And today is the day to thank God because he gave of himself to give you everlasting riches. Let's pray.